This is Clutch Fans. And by the way, shout out to the Clutch fans. You're listening to the Clutch Fans Podcast, an open conversation for Houston Rockets diehards. Houston Rockets is unbeatable. I'm ready to get on Clutch Fans. Now, here's your host, the man who would have drafted Harold Miner over Robert Ory, Dave Hardesty. Welcome into the podcast. We are here at Toyota Center. A very big win for the Houston Rockets, 112 to 102 in game five against the Utah Jazz to close out the Jazz and to advance to the Western Conference Finals for the first time since 2015 for the Houston Rockets. What a game. Chris Paul, this was really all about him having just a a terrific night. I'm here with my good friend uh, MK Bauer. You can follow him on Twitter at Moisicapenda and I've always mentioned this every time, but he really is a must-follow uh, for Sports Insight. MK, this tonight was really all about Chris Paul. It's really interesting to watch narratives kind of play out over the course of players' careers and and all the great play that Chris Paul has given us through the course of his career, both in the regular season and in the postseason, for different reasons, either injury or just bad luck here and there. He hasn't been able to get beyond the second round and how much of a burden that's been on his shoulders through the course of his career, particularly the last few years when he had really good seasons with the Clippers and things just didn't materialize. And the thing about it all kind of coming to a head tonight, they were going to win this series. You knew that. But you don't want this Houston to get extended. And Harden apparently was under the weather. And, again, no one else is really doing much of anything other than P.J. Tucker tonight. And then he scores 20 points in the fourth quarter and just absolutely eviscerated Utah's defense. And to see him play at that level, uh, the, the, the aggressiveness, the assertiveness, getting to every spot he wanted on the floor and making jumper after jumper after jumper. These weren't layups. These were jumpers, mid-range jumpers, 8 of 10 three-pointers. It was incredible. And you're thinking he just turned 33 the other day. He's on the downside of his career, not obviously a fast decline, but he's not what he was in his mid to like 20s. And to see him play at this level, it was mind-blowing. I think there was a moment in the fourth quarter I just kind of stopped typing <laughs> and I stopped tweeting and I just wanted to kind of watch a few possessions in a row because it was pretty clear that he was a man possessed. And, they, and Harden and Tucker were joking about it in a post-game presser. At one point, um, Paul got a rebound and, like, vigorously waved everybody off. Like, I've got this. Like, get out the way. And when you see a guy like him play at that level, you recognize how much they want it. And I don't like getting into all these sort of discussions and cliches about who wanted more. He clearly wanted it in that spot and wasn't going to let the Rockets lose this game and wasn't about to get back on the plane of Salt Lake City. Yeah, it really, it, you know, to me it was all about him. He carried the Rockets in this game. I mean, none of us knew until after the game that James Hart was under the weather. Well, I, I want to talk to you a little bit about that as well. But, you know, Paul coming in with 41 points, as you pointed out, 20 in the fourth quarter. Uh, in the second, third, and fourth quarters, he was 8 of 8 from three-point range, including a ridiculous fadeaway bank shot uh, late in the game to sort of uh, help put this away. Um, you know, and I, I pointed out 41 points, 10 boards, uh, or excuse me, 10 assists, and I believe six rebounds. And no turnovers. And that's the thing. Yeah. Zero turnovers. The Rockets had two as a team in the second half. Um, and it was really about Chris Paul taking care, taking care of it. And 
it was, uh, you know, and I should point out, as everyone knows, this is the first time he's ever been to the, uh, the conference finals. I mean, it's kind of been an unfair criticism about him that he's, quote-unquote, never been out of the second round. And if the Rockets do not beat the Warriors in the next round, then they'll just flip that criticism to he's never been to the NBA finals uh, before. And it's just, it's just one of those ridiculous things. But I think tonight, probably his best game as a Rocket, um, and he has it in, in the biggest moment. Uh, to me, that was great. I, I think you have to balance this with Harden. We saw Harden in Game 4 in, the end, in Utah really kind of have one of those moments where he doesn't look really good. He's turning the ball over. I believe he had eight turnovers in the game. And tonight, his shot was not falling. And I think more concerning is you saw him targeted defensively, I, I believe, it looked to me in the third quarter when Donovan Mitchell's just exploding for 22 points. And they, on the switches, they were finding Harden mm-hmm. and going directly at him. It, it's interesting to, to think that we found out after the game that he was sickly. It seemed like Utah figured it out during the course of the game. Like something wasn't right about his body language, his thrust, his energy. All those things were missing. I mean, it, we, we've watched James for several years now, and he tends to play almost at a, at a slow motion pace, even when he's having good games. Like, there isn't a lot of high kinetic energy in his game. But tonight, he seems so lethargic. And yeah. I think it became pretty clear when else on the court that something was amiss. Not just his normal kind of ease of which he does things, but something else was, was wrong. And like, to your point, like Utah really sought him out defensively in the third quarter and just victimized him. And it was, again, it, it felt to me like the second half the other night it's where – I wondered if if Dan Swin was going to put him back in the game. Like he played so poorly mm-hmm. in the third quarter in Game Four that I was curious if he was going to get any burn in the second half of the fourth quarter in that game. And tonight, I was thinking the same thing. But again, like that, that, that same thing the other night, Eric Gordon was giving you nothing, so you have another you have no other guard to really kind of turn to. Gerald Green gave them a little boost at, at, during a short stretch here in the second half, but you need one of those other two guards to kind of complement Chris Paul. And the Gord is giving you nothing. Then you got to go with the guy who's making you know twenty eight million dollars a year and hope whatever he's feeling he can kind of push through. And to an extent, to his credit, he pushed through it. He got a, a key basket. He got the, the the steal that led to the dunk that led to Mitchell unfortunately leaving the game with the injury. He was there in a couple spots when he needed him, but by and large, this is what they got Chris Paul for, right? Like all the discussion of can these guys play together? Well, the moments are also can one of them just carry the load when the other one can't? Yeah. And we kind of lose sight of that. We've kind of got wrapped up in the whole dialogue about them sharing the basketball. Tonight was a perfect example of two Hall of Famers on the court, one all the time. And Chris Paul was the Hall of Famer tonight. He got the job done, and they didn't need hard to be extraordinary. They just needed Chris Paul to be fantastic. And P.J. Tucker's performance was otherworldly, given the circumstances with everybody else on the team. Yeah, absolutely. Tucker was uh, a big topic in the locker room and at the podium a lot, you know, a lot of questions being asked about him because he had uh, a terrific game and before we talk about him I, I want to say a couple things on Harden we've talked before uh, last year about kind of what happened in, in the Spurs series and I pointed out I think to me it was more concerning the game five in San Antonio how he closed he actually had a good game until suddenly he came in late and it just seemed like he couldn't hold on to the ball was making really um, poor decisions, poor passes. And somebody pointed out um, something in this, uh, it might have been on Twitter, but in um, game four of this series, you know, as he was starting to struggle, that perhaps he gets a little bit wrapped up in frustration. Like he turns it over a few times and, and he's, I, I don't know. I'm looking for a good theory. I don't, I don't buy into the whole just chokes, but there are times when it just looks like the batteries are low and something's not right. Like he's not making the solid decisions he's really known for, not making the right uh, the plays. But I wanted to ask you this, just why you think this. 
Harden is always given, whenever he's sick, injured, hurt, he's always given the op- opportunity to explain it. He never takes it. He always says nothing's wrong. Why, why is that exactly? Because he can't win. Like, there's no amount of explaining away an illness that's not going to sound like an excuse. And, and, and you and I have discussed this kind of off, off camera, off, off the podcast a lot. There are just certain players in this league that, for whatever reason, the general populace doesn't like. No. And and they wait for those guys to either give an excuse or give a poor performance to lambaste them. And Harden is one of those guys. Unfortunately, I think and I'm I'm not a Rockets fan. I think everybody knows this. I'm saying this from a completely objective perspective. He's by and large is not that embraced around the league from a from a fandom perspective. Yeah, no question. And I think because of that, and I think he's aware of that, you can't get on a podium and say I have a fever or I have a tummy ache or I have this. It doesn't. It's not going to sell. And people aren't going to buy it. They don't care. They're going to look at you going four for 13 in the second half. And as a team, and as the game was in the balance and the team needed you, you're not really providing much of anything. And that's all the focus is going to be. So when you know you can't win, why even delve into the conversation? There's nothing to gain there. And I think to kind of to tie back into your point about last year, I wouldn't be surprised that if we learn at some point there was something wrong with him physically those last couple games of the San Antonio series. I know there's a talk about him just wearing down from the, the, the burden of carrying the load, but maybe something beyond that. But when you're compensated to the level he is, when you're an MVP candidate now three out of the last four years and you may win it this season, there's nothing you can say. Like LeBron James, for example, like having cramps is a legitimate issue in a, in a, in a sport, sure. whether it's football, basketball, baseball, but because it's LeBron James, he can't afford to have cramps in San Antonio in the finals. A lot of people call it menstrual cramps, and then that's sticking <laughs> with him for several years beyond that. Like, right. That's a legitimate malady, and yet people will beat him over the head with it for the rest of his career because that's how these things play out over Twitter and over the course of criticism from fans. Uh, you know, I got. You, you mentioned PJ Tucker. We got to talk about him. I, Tucker's the kind of guy that I just love. I've always been drawn to the Mario Ellie t- style player, Patrick Beverly. Guys who are sort of self-made. They weren't ready coming out of college to, to have an impact in the NBA. They had to maybe even go overseas, uh, you know, toil in the D League or or just sit on the bench for years and, and kind of watch. PJ Tucker is that kind of player, and he's become so valuable. I mean, I, somebody pointed out on Twitter today. I can't remember who it was, but you know. Wh- what would the Raptors be like this year had they kept Tucker and maybe let Ariza go? Uh, and I mean, geez, I said Ariza. Ibaka. I mean, Ibaka. Thank you. And um, and it's an interesting point because a lot of people point out he, he was probably their best defensive player last year. He has had a huge impact for the Rockets. Just, uh, you know, a couple numbers in, or a little bit few numbers in the series. We talked about Tucker and Paul carrying them. Tucker hit 52% from three-point range in the series, and uh, Chris Paul, because of this huge game, 8 of 10 uh, in, in Game 5, 44%. Those guys are really the only two in this series who shot the three ball well at all. I mean, you go down the stretch, Harden, uh, 29.5%, uh, Eric Gordon, 33%, uh, Trevor Ariza, 31.8%. These are your volume shooters. It's a little bit of a concern going into the conference finals. But P.J. Tucker has just been outstanding on both ends of the floor and he's been their best three-point shooter throughout the playoffs i think the thing that stands out to me is is being um committed enough to still play defense at the dogged level he plays defense to accept and it didn't happen a ton this year's where he's at the defend bigger guys but that energy on that end of the court it never dissipates like he's always going hard as possible defensively and tonight when the offense worked out to where he got open corner threes he banged them through and that's it, it, it's. I don't want to be reductive and, and, and simplify his role, but that's kind of his role. 
play defense like a maven, make open corner threes. That's all we're at when I ask you to put the ball on the floor, when I ask you to play make, when I ask you to do anything else except those two things. And he does those two things so extraordinarily well. And tonight was kind of the apex of that. It was, it was the embodiment of what P.J. Tucker is asked to do, and he did it to the hilt. And it was so impressive because as Chris Paul is kind of going through his extraordinary game, there were two shots that P.J. Tucker hit that really complimented Paul extraordinarily. The three-pointer he hit at the end of the first half with 1.1 seconds left after Paul had kind of gave that thrust to get them back into the league. Um, they kind of covered Paul there at the last second. P.J. was wide open, and that was above the break three. He banged it home. Paul had the moment in the second half. I think he scored 13 consecutive points, if I'm not mistaken. Something to that extent. 35 seconds left. The Rockets up by seven. It's almost there. Who hit the three-pointer to seal it? It was P.J. Tucker in the corner. And to me, it's the perfect foil. Like, you're asking one guy to carry a huge load, but one other guy just to help him here in spots. And P.J. Tucker was a guy, not James Harden, not Trevor Reza tonight, not Clint Capella. It was P.J. Tucker. And I think guys like that, to your point about traveling the world and, and taking so long to get to this point, man, you must relish that. It must feel good to him to kind of go home tonight and realize I earned my keep tonight. I did my job extraordinarily well, really and we're did. getting to a level now that I've never been before in my career. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I think another thing that maybe he doesn't get enough credit for is really keeping guys off the boards. I, I thought his strength uh, when he gets switched down low is, is just outstanding. I think, you know, tonight the Jazz had several second-chance opportunities. I believe they got 11 offensive rebounds. I think it was uh, 24 offensive rebounds through the first four games. I mean, the Rockets cleaned up on the defensive glass. thought that was really big. They, they, were, they were limiting their opportunities, and I think the Rockets as well uh, were cutting out, cutting down the turnovers. We pointed out how well they took care of the ball in the second half tonight. Uh, you know, I think we're going to the conference finals, and, uh, the, the, you know, we're watching the Rockets going to the conference finals here, and they're struggling a little bit from three-point range. I mean, we talked about Tucker, Paul just having this big game. But overall, they're not really shooting, you know, efficiently. I, I joke around that they're sort of the uh, – got to get my Russell Westbrook dig in, right, well, at least once. But it's sort of the Westbrook – when people talk about them being the, this great three-point shooting team, it's really by volume. It's not, you know, by efficiency that they're really about a league average three-point shooting team. And they're not shooting well in the playoffs. But they've really still been able to kill teams because of those things we outlined. I think, uh, you know, they had the mid-range game in some of these games. They've been, you know, keeping guys off the offensive glass and keeping the turnovers down. I, I don't know if that alone is going to be enough against the Warriors. They're going to have to. And, and, and let's just say the Warriors aren't there yet. We're currently in the third quarter of uh, Game 5 of the Warriors-Pelicans, but we're assuming the uh, Warriors are going to take that series. Do they have enough? Can they beat this team in a seven-game series, the Warriors? I think clearly, and I've... I'm not, I've not wavered from this at any point this season. I think the Warriors are the better team. I think the Warriors win that series in six games. But to your point, if the Rockets can defend like they've defended, if they can rebound like they've rebounded, if they can limit turnovers like they've done thus far in the postseason, the one missing element is shooting three-pointers better than a 35.3% clip. It's going to take more than that. Like, I get that that's a little bit below league average, roughly league average. I get that because of the volume that's sufficient to beat teams like Minnesota and Utah. It ain't going to work against Golden State. Like, you have to be at peak performance in multiple categories to beat a team as talented as Golden State is. And I think they've shown that they can get things done without shooting threes well thus far. It's going to take that to get beyond the Warriors because the Warriors are the best team in the league talent-wise, in my opinion. It's going to take 38 to 40% three-point shooting in the course of that series to win that series, and by volume as well. It's going to take Harden performing at an MV caliber level for the course of six or seven games, not one or two or three. 
and it's going to take everybody really believing they can do it. Now, I, I will get the Rock assist. I think because of the success they had this year against the Warriors, like, it's been forever ago, January the 20th, I think was the last time they played. I think they believe, maybe more so than anybody in the media, national or local, maybe more so than anybody who filled this arena tonight believes. I think they believe. But it's going to take a much better performance overall offensively to combat all the things that the Warriors can do to them defensively. Again, my concern has always been they can send so many different guys at James Harden, Green, Durant, Thompson, Iguodala, and it just changes the course of what the Rockets can do offensively because of the versatility they present defensively. Now, a Rocket fan can say we can do the same thing to KD with Tucker and with Luke and with Ariza, but I just think by and large their depth defensively and their skill offensively is just better than what the Rockets can offer, and it's going to take way more offensively than what the Rockets have shown to be the team that's going to Golden State. Are you looking at KD as the guy to stop? Because, I mean, obviously they've got three ridiculous weapons, right? Two that just can create their own shot uh, pretty much. You know, Curry's that, that kind of player. Um, is that sort of, I mean, I don't know where you, you begin. You're, you're switching defense has to stay on, I mean, respect almost everybody. I mean, maybe you sag off a of Draymond and, and make him beat you with that three-point shot. I believe he was in the very low 30% range this particular season, but he's had a season where he shot 40, you know, 39, 40% from three. He can knock that down. I, you know, I, I don't know where you sag off on a team like this or where, you know, what the, the, the defensive game plan is necessarily. It seems like, Durant's that guy that's just impossible to stop, and, and Clay's, or, uh, excuse me, Curry's a guy you just can't leave. You know, you're just going to have to keep keep on him at all points. You can't leave him for that open three. It's funny we get wrapped up in discussions about who's the best offensive player of the league, and honestly, I don't think there's been a discussion in the last three or four years. Just Durant. There's no better offensive player in this game than Durant. Period. And I know we love to kind of shift the, the narrative every now and then just because we want to have a fresh take about these things, about it being Harden or LeBron or Giannis or Russ or AD. It's Kevin Durant. He's the best offensive player in the NBA and has been for quite a while. He's the wild card offensively. Draymond Green is a wild card defensively. If they're going to go with a Hamptons 5 lineup and Draymond can effectively defend not only Capella on rolls and battle him on the glass, but then switch and defend Harden and switch and defend Chris Paul on occasion, it changes everything. So, yeah, I've, how can the Rockets figure out a method to defend Kevin Durant enough to where he's not taking over two or three games? I'm absolutely obliterating them for two or three games in the series. Let's think back. The moments they took control of the series against, against the Cavs last year, it was Durant, not Curry. It was not Thompson. It was Durant. Because no one in this league can effectively defend him over stretches of time when he's engaged and locked in. When he's the alpha male on that team offensively. So to me, he's a wild card. And I don't think the Rockets, like every other team in the league, they don't really have an answer for him. They figure out a way. They effectively neutralize him. They keep him in a box where he's not completely dominating the game and getting 38 and 9 and 6. They win a series. But that's way easier said than done, given what we've seen from Durant over the last several years. I think this is going to be a huge series for Clint Capella because I think we're going to we're going to learn a little bit more about him to see as far as his growth. I think this has always been a bad matchup for him. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he we you know what you're getting when you're throwing him up against Gobert. He's going one on one against Cat. I don't think he was really ever a man on an island guarding Carl Anthony Towns. I mean, that was really took a, a village, a team effort to to, to sort of stop him. But Draymond is just a completely different breed of, of player. I mean, just a guy. I mean, and granted, they won't be necessarily one on one all the time. But I think on on these switches, uh, he, you know, he could give uh, Clint some trouble. I, I think it's going to be very big for uh, for the Rockets for Clint to have a big series because I think that's what's going to help. You know, sort of 
differentiate them from the way they've played the Warriors in the past, and because honestly, the Rockets haven't been competitive with, against the Warriors before this season. I mean, in, in the last several years, um, and so this is uh, that. That to me is probably going to be the biggest X factor as far as whether they're they're closer or not. Uh, my one thing is this, and it's my caveat. Because it's been so long, I've kind of forgotten the impact that Chris Paul had on this series, and I, and I want to see how him being a part of this team impacts what happens over the course of a seven-game series. And to your point, they haven't been very competitive against Golden State over the last several years until this season. But really, how much that Chris, Chris Paul was hurt, basically, and wobbled, hobbled in the first game. And then the second and third game, again, were just so long ago, they're kind of distant memories. I'm just curious to see what his addition to this team, particularly given this matchup means. And he's had his issues with, with, with Steph Curry in, in years past. And, 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 again, the way that they can defend hard, they can effectively do the same thing to Chris Paul on occasion. Can he influence the Rockets positively enough to where they can win four times? And it just sounds crazy, right? Four times against Golden State. And, uh, they've won 65 games. They're the best te- record in the league. It just sounds unfathomable to think of a team beating Golden State four times. Twelve and zero against the West last year. Twelve and zero. Yeah, it's it's it's, and I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer. It's just yeah. hard for me to wrap my mind around any team beating them four times in seven games. The Rockets are going to play much better than they played thus far. And that's the thing. I think people look at this as the Rockets have home court. They should win the series. At least matter. based on that, you're exactly right. I mean, they, you know, to me, this is still considered an upset if the Rockets pull it off and a big one. I mean, like I said, if. If, you know, anyone could have looked at the, what the Warriors did last year and say, hey, this very next year you're going to have a, a, a worthy challenger against them, uh, I think you would take that. Um, and I think this is, this is by all measures, your NBA Finals. Yeah. These are the best two teams in the league. They should be in the NBA Finals. I, I personally believe either team would beat um, the, the Cavs or uh, probably the Celtics, assuming they, they knock off the Sixers. But, uh, you know, could, could either team could suffer from a letdown after such an emotional series. But uh, I, most people are picking the Warriors in five, and I think that's the, the Rockets may surprise some people and, and extend this. But they're, they're seasoned, they're experienced, they they know exactly, you know, they know how to play with each other extremely well in in, uh, in the playoffs. And, but you know, give the Rockets credit; they they've been fantastic this year, and I think it's uh, I think it's going to be a better series than some people are thinking. I just want to see how the Rockets rise to the occasion because I think to the to underscore the point you were making. Gold State's kind of low-key been looking forward to this. Like, everything that's kind of happened in the second half of the season, I kind of look back on an Instagram post I had, I guess the last time that the, the teams played here, and the Rockets were still like three and a half games behind Golden State in the standings, and I think about how much further they finished ahead of them. Gold State at some point just kind of conceded the number one overall seed. They've been looking forward to this. And I think, to the Rockets' credit, they haven't really talked a lot of smack about we want them, we want them. They understand what's coming up. They understand the challenge ahead. But I think Golden State's been looking forward to this to, to kind of field a significant challenge. They've been here about the Rockets all year. You know? And to stamp it out. So, yeah. I mean, man, how do the Rockets kind of rise up to that challenge? Not just Golden State being a great team, but I think Golden State being ready to kind of put the wood to them to show them you're not close to us just yet. And that's what I'm anxious to see. So some rest is coming for this team. James Harden uh, not, uh, under the weather and uh, said he's you know, looking forward to this rest. So I think the earliest the Rockets can play is Monday, I believe, game one uh, for the Western Conference Finals and likely against the Golden State Warriors. That is M.K. Bauer. M.K., thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Dave.